All right, I wanted to welcome everybody to episode three of Dealer Chats. I am here with a good friend of mine, Mr. Madi Jawad with Onakar Fresno. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on our show today and answer a few questions for us and, and share that information with dealers all across the state and all across the country. So if you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, about you, your family. Well, I'm, not, I'm an outdoorsman, so not too far from the car business. I like riding quads dirt bikes, side-by-sides, whatever gets me in the dust and dirty. That's what gets my mind away from the car business. A little bit of thrill, different kind of thrill. Anyways, hey, that's cool. So ever since I was eight, I used to, I go up to my dad's ranch in Corsco, which is about an hour up the hill towards Yosemite. And uh, that's how I like to spend my free time, just away from society more or less. That's really cool. That's why I moved to Gilroy. <laughs> it's, still, it's still a lot of people in Gilroy but. Yeah, I know <laughs> compared to San Jose it's a big difference <laughs> well that's really fun man you got to take me out there sometime when did you first start out in the car business so I started off as a more or less as a recon slash lot porter would move cars around just on the lot I, did, I only had a permit so I would work on the cars myself and then once I did get my license I started to shuttle cars around the shops and started to get to know the shops and stuff but it was also my enthusiasm of driving a car I was always interested in cars it was not work to me because I got to go to work and drive cars around so it was more of a more or less a joyful day you and I have a lot in common when it comes to that <laughs> I couldn't I could not wait I was watching cars when I was 10 years old oh man but I'm very happy for it, very grateful for it. It definitely formed the person I am today because of the way he, the things he made me go through, the things he made me learn. We had an office manager that needed time off, so I went and filled in her for her for a little bit and got to gain the experience of the office. I ended up moving out of the recon shop out into Onacar. I didn't jump up all at once. I had to build my way there little by little and just oversee the departments, oversee the desk guys, I did sales very shortly, but wasn't there for long. I just got to know how it works and how the flow works. And more or less, I shadowed the general manager for a good two years. So from there, I gained enough knowledge to where I felt like I could do a better job than what the general manager, the, the past general manager could do. And when the time came right, which was back, I believe 2017, I became the general manager of Odakar. How do you go about building a team like that? How, do you, how did you go about getting the departments to be to work more closely together? I believe a series of a lot of meetings is important. It's important to bring everybody into one room and talk about the same topic while everyone's in the same room. So by having that one meeting and making sure that everyone has the same objective and they understand what the leader's objective is, you can hold people more accountable to not following the objective. When I came into the dealership, they weren't doing meetings. We try to have meetings twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. So we have a meeting before the weekend to close out our week. And then we have a meeting on Monday to talk about the weekend and where we could have done better. So for example, we'll come together and say we got overwhelmed in these certain departments and that's what we work on. The meetings only go for 15 to 20 minutes, I found out that the longer the meeting is with sales staff, the less you accomplished. I've also found it very useful to have agendas drown out before you go into a meeting. 
if you go in with a piece of paper, empty piece of paper, you really, you guys bounce around all over the place and don't accomplish anything. But with an agenda, you can kind of go down item by item and make sure you cover what you wanted to cover. We definitely have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> I was always interested in cars from a young age, so I decided to become a mechanical engineer. And after I finished mechanical engineering, I did pursue my master's currently in process. A lot of people wonder, why would you go to school for mechanical engineering? And it was really through the process I learned that all I accomplished was becoming an educated person. I graduated May 2015, about two weeks before I came to own a car full time. Oh my gosh. In your experience as a car dealer, what, tell me about one funny story that stands out in your mind. Like that, the funniest one that you can remember over the years. Me as an owner, I like to help out my customers when I see people come in um, pissed off or whatever. And I like to intercept that and take it away from my sales team so that negative energy doesn't spread. So one time I grabbed the customer and said, oh, okay, let me help you out. And I take them outside and start explaining how I can help them out. And they stopped and said, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to help me. I want a manager to help me. So, well, Mr. Cut, I obviously, I didn't explain uh, who I was in the dealership. I just approached them as a regular employee. And they went on. I said, trust me, I, I'm, I'm going to be the one that will help you at the end. And uh, they wouldn't have it. They, they wanted to talk to somebody else. So I sent them on their way inside. You know, go ahead and you can go inside and figure it out. So about 15 or 20 minutes later, the customer ends up on my desk. <laughs> Tell me, tell me a, a horror story that, that you remember. A big horror story is, uh, I can, it's still a continuing horror story. It was a, it was a deal where we, we were iffy on the deal. The customer was being somewhat shady, um, but we decided to do the deal. We had an approval, but we wanted to GPS the vehicle. So the customer, uh, the salesperson ends up putting the GPS in the wrong car. So two, three days later, we're pinging the car and it's pinging in the parking lot. And we know the car is not in the parking lot. <laughs> so, oh. till today, the car is missing. <laughs> I would say it happened uh, two, three days before Christmas of 2000. 2018? 2019. 2019, it's very recent. Very recent. We try to take precautions now. Um, what we do now is we actually hard GPS all one month recourse deals and all deals we just don't feel good, have a gut feeling about. So installing a GPS, the GPS with installation runs you about $95. I think of it as an insurance plan. So $95 will guarantee your car back if anything goes wrong, which could be a $10,000 item or a $30,000 item. But mm -hmm it increases your chances of finding the vehicle. I've heard that, that some of those um, illegal organizations have ways of removing those GPS trackers. Is that true? Yes, yes they do. I did have a customer where I installed two GPSs on it and the customer was somehow able to uh, get them to not ping. They, they didn't completely remove them, but they messed with them. They tinkered with them somehow where they stopped pinging. Uh, it took us a while to find the vehicle. We did find it. I mean, a GPS unit is a very simple unit. 
Mm-hmm. People think of them as being more complex, but they're not complicated at all. As, at all. Therefore, they're very easy to manipulate or simply customer takes it off and puts it on a battery and throws it in a warehouse and it will still ping. So it's just a matter of finding it. it from our experience, if, if you check the credit bureau and you see addresses that are out of state, those are the ones that end up leaving the state again. So they have somewhere to go out of state. In some cases, maybe they're here for a job and they just need a way to get back home with their stuff. So they'll pick up a car. Maybe they'll even, we had a case where they did give us $2,000 down. They got a Nissan Sentra and drove it all the way back to Minnesota and just ditched it. Um, to her, I guess she maybe she couldn't rent a vehicle or something and it was just a way for her to get back home. But more or less, the credit bureau would have been the indication to see, well, this person's only been in California or maybe they haven't been in California at all. If someone comes in from out of state and if they don't have, let's say, a firm job line with a firm residence, we will not sell them a vehicle. So they will need to come in and show maybe they moved on. Maybe they're working at some company on the East Coast and the East Coast company transferred them here and they have the, a good same job line. Um, they have housing provided. They can prove that they live at the residence. Then that would be a better sale, I would say. But without that, you don't know if they're going to keep their job. You don't know what might change in their lives that might make them just pick stuff up and go home. Can you tell us a horror story about an interaction with a vendor? I do have one particular one that stands out. It was uh, we were lifting trucks, putting wheels and tires on them. And we noticed the pattern of we'd put them on the front line and the truck would go missing at night and the truck would end up somewhere else in town like behind sam's club or behind walmart with the wheels missing so it was someone obviously knew that the wheels didn't have locks on them um we figured out that it was a certain vendor we were taking the the trucks to and the truck would have two keys so someone from his shop was splitting the keys keeping the spare key unlocking the car in the middle of the night and taking off um, he got away with doing three trucks before we figured it out. So they would come and just leave it on block somewhere in the, you know, uh, north side of town or wherever there was a warehouse. And the vendor obviously would, you know, oh, well, I don't know my, it's not my employees. I have good employees. And I called them out on it, telling them, hey, you know, I don't run background checks on my employees. I didn't at the time. So I'm pretty sure you don't do background checks at your tire shop. You don't know who you can trust. So that's the conclusion. Even though you, you trust the vendor owner, or the shop owner, but you can't trust his employees. You don't know who they are. And some vendors have 30, 40 employees and people do things in desperate measures. I ended up stopped. I didn't, I stopped doing business with that vendor because uh, he wouldn't go the extra mile to try to figure out who it was. So it wasn't good business for me. How important is it for a vendor to go the extra mile? Him going the extra mile shows how much he cares for our business and how much he values the relationship between us. A lot of vendor relationships are based on trust because as an owner, I don't have the time to go there and check on his shop and make sure they're doing the right job. So I would say it's very important for them to go that extra mile and show us and guarantee us that they do have our best interest. The car business, I. I would always say we operated in a gray zone. 
I see that grade zone getting bigger and bigger as uh, time goes by. Cars in the past are like a normal product that gets sold as is. Now it's almost like there's more duty to a car. It's more of a, of a legal process more than a consumer purchase. And as we all know, as business owners, the profit margins are just getting slimmer and slimmer. But it seems like we're held to more and more responsibility. We're selling uh, used cars for five, six thousand dollars and expecting uh, a customer is expecting more or less a brand new car that will last them 150 to 200,000 miles, which we all know is not the case. We're more responsible to make sure that the customer is going to make sure they keep their car and their car is going to operate throughout the years. Um, even from the banking side, they're raising their expectations from dealers now. They expect us to sell more or less uh, cars that will last throughout the entire term of the car. So you're basically saying that the finance companies also expect you to sell vehicles that are more likely to last throughout the term of the loan. Correct. But not they're also getting involved in making sure that all the cosmetics work and making sure that the customer has a 100% operational vehicle, even when it comes to moonroof and uh, window regulators, seat regulators, they want to make sure that the customers are 100% satisfied with the purchase. I think they're scared of legal issues more than anything. And they also are in a position where they can put that burden on the dealership rather than carrying the burden on themselves. If they can always push the dealer to carry the responsibility of selling a good vehicle, then they can sleep better at night. Have you noticed an increase in lawsuits for dealerships coming from consumers? Yes, I do talk to other operators at different dealerships and they definitely have seen an increase of demand letters coming in from attorneys and uh, petty cases coming up and we're having to represent ourselves more and more. People reach out asking me where I go for help on my legal advice and you know, I recommend them to my friends, obviously, Ali. Thank you. There's cases where, as car dealers, we all use the same software. We all use the same auto check. We all use the same paperwork, essentially. No dealership makes their own paperwork up. I am a used car dealership. A lot of us independents are used car dealerships. All we sell is used. Yet customers with challenged credit are walking on our lot. You know, we're helping them because they have the challenged credit. We know they wouldn't be here if they had good credit and uh, we do our best to get, a, get them a good vehicle and try to make a profit out of it as well and two three years later down the line you're having to worry about you know losing your business because you're just on good intention selling cars more or less bad credit customers come to us for a reason and they buy from us for a reason because new car store won't sell them a car but yet mm -hmm. and then we have to carry all those lawsuits I know you deal with a ton of challenges. I mean, that's an understatement. No question about it. If you could pick one challenge that is your, in your mind, your biggest challenge right now, what would that be? We put vehicles on the road, guesstimating what finances would be. And a lot of deals aren't deals and we need to bring those cars back. So that would be the biggest challenge right now. That number is going up. From what I can see, customers are not providing the correct information to us. And then when the stips come in, like their check stub, they said they made 3000 but all of a sudden they make, 
you know, 2000 on the Czech stub and we have to bring those cars back. So I'd say that that's one of the biggest challenges is, you know, putting that money out on the road and having to bring it back. And it is a big risk because what's the incentive of a customer to bring back the car? We have had cases where the customer just decides to take off or trash the vehicle. So it is very challenging and it is very risky. A lot of people don't know what they actually make. They don't know their job time. We're sending over the information that we believe is correct and accurate and come to find out the customer doesn't have a job there or they're going to start on the job next month or they hope they're going to get a job there. As a dealer, we can't charge them anything or you know we can't make up for our losses, but it's, some, it's just part of the business that you just got to absorb that loss, clean up the vehicle and still be nice to the customer and hope they come back one day when they can buy a car. They don't understand how important it is to be accurate on these numbers and the income. They assume it's like uh, buying a TV or getting financing like a Best Buy card or something. Which you can just put whatever numbers and it's going to go through the system. No, it's very different in the car business. People are, in the past years, things have changed to where we need to be very accurate. Um, a lot of bank interviews and so on. What issues do you expect to run into in the next three to six months? In the next three to six months, I am most concerned about people's job times. Because of COVID-19, a lot of people went on unemployment. Now those people don't qualify to get a finance loan anymore. So as they come back into the field and they start trying to purchase vehicles, I see it very challenging where, how are we going to get these people approved where before, you know, they had a six year job history. Now it's a two month job history or a one month job history. And it's going to raise interest rates. And it's a lot of customers are not going to understand it. So we're going to have to figure out how to get through that challenge and still get customers to purchase vehicles. And more or less, we're going to try to reach out to older customers and keep the flow of customers coming in. But it's something I believe is out of my control or out of anyone's control, where if, you know, the public doesn't have jobs, it's, you know, I can't give them jobs. Right. I know many dealers right now are dealing with the issue of how to deal with aged units and aging units, right? Especially with COVID-19. What do you do about your aged units? Well, I think an age unit splits into two categories. You have a program vehicle that will more or less, you know, you probably just need to clean up that car and change the price on it and it'll sell. Then you have the other age unit where you didn't really have any foot traffic on that vehicle. Just something that's way out of the price range because no one's looking at that car anyways. You have to give them, you know, half off or almost free for them to be interested in it. They're not looking for that vehicle to start with. Mini programs are a good idea letting a salesman know, hey, this certain unit, if you sell it for this amount, you're gonna make $500 mini on it, regardless of the customer's credit. So I use them as a, when we get a customer with a high discount fee, I make that the customer's option to buy. They don't qualify for the car they first came in on. Let's say they came in on a $30,000 vehicle. They obviously don't qualify for that. So I'll make one of the old stalkers one of their options to purchase. So I will take a risk on one of those. I'll lose money on that deal. A customer gets a car and I get rid of an old unit and the salesman gets a small mini.
So it's a win-win for all three of us. But in many cases, all it takes is job and cleaning it up and putting it in the right spot, and it will sell. I would say right spot on the lot. If you're a foot traffic lot, like I am, I would put it in the front, put it out somewhere maybe next to the entranceway. Um, Digital-wise, it would just depend exactly. Facebook campaigns are very effective. But again, if a customer is not looking for that car and it's not appealing to them, then no matter how many times you put it in their face, it's just wasted money. So you can stack out their oldest units. I print them out in an Excel sheet. I go over what we're asking prices versus what the current wholesale and retail book are. If it needs to be adjusted, I do so. I go walk the lot and check the vehicle and see why it's not selling. In many cases, it could be stuck behind five cars and no salesman just wants to go through the trouble of pulling it out. It could be as simple as a check engine light. In my case, my salesman will not come tell me, hey, this car has a check engine light. It's something me and my lot porters have to work on together. Something as simple as that could turn off a customer completely. It could be the smallest things. What's that magic number, that, that number of days that that car has been there where it triggers for you to get up out of your office and go and actually check that and take a look at that car? I think right around 150 days is really pushing it here. If it's going towards 100 days and you have zero pending sales, that's an alarm. You know, you've had a car for three months and you haven't worked one sale on it. That's an issue. But if a car has pending sales, um, I wouldn't be too worried about it. It's just a matter of finding the right customer that could afford that car. And it's still being, it's still a popular car. Um, with the, no sales on it, you need to figure out why there's no sales on it. And it could be stuck out of shop. It could be, like I said, buried or just an ugly car. Well, I've heard horror stories about finding age units uh, that were not even on the lot. Yes. I mean, I've had one myself. I came on, pulled it when I first came to own a car, pulled the inventory sheet. And this Dodge journey kept coming up. So eight months later, we find out it's out of shop and it just, it's a $300 repair and just no one authorized it. Oh my gosh. Where do you get your information that leads to changes in your policies and procedures? I get some information from my managers in the meetings. Um, I do have an office door that stays open. So I always listen to what the salespeople and the customers are telling each other and then i do have my subscription with dealer xt that's always updating me with the newest the newest law that's out so based on that i i use that to put together i do have a very close hand on the sales here so i always am observant of what's going on if i start to see things going not the direction they're supposed to i start pulling together meetings and making sure my managers start shifting their direction. Got it. And so the second question is, once you get that information, how do you go about making that a policy? So, and, and that's the biggest challenge that I see in new policies. And in the car business, you're not dealing with the case of a memo going out and everyone changing their habit. You need to actually go out and enforce your new policies. Um, in many cases, you can explain it at a meeting. Me, myself, I go out and I make sure, I watch the salesman take the next customers and make sure they implement the new process. If it's not implemented the way I want it, 
then I go again, pull another meeting and let them know, hey, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. We need to fix this. And it's a back and forth process that is never ending, actually. So as you go, you will always need to tighten up your processes. You will always need to have these meetings. Um, it's never a set it and forget it thing. That doesn't happen in the car business. A lot of repetition and the follow-up is the most important part because if you don't follow up, they tend to not understand how important it is. If you keep talking about it and you keep mentioning it, eventually they'll understand how important these things are and they'll just make it part of their job and get it handled. A lot of salespeople just see it as, let's just make the sale and they move on and they jump from dealership to dealership. Um, in many cases, they feel like the dealership is the one that's gonna go down and not them personally. So they can care less. They just need that commission and move on to the next sale. So it's very important to work with your staff and knowing what staff members you do wanna have on your team and which ones you don't. Because the ones that don't care for your business, you definitely don't want them around. How has COVID-19 and the stay at home orders negatively impacted your dealership? I think. The car business is a big momentum ball. The last tax season in 2019, um, a lot of dealerships did very well because we had this big momentum ball that kept going on and on almost till September. Um, what COVID-19 did for our tax season is it stopped the ball. And now we're having to get this big boulder back again going. And uh, it's not an easy task. It's very hard once the momentum stops. They, they paid us a visit daily to make sure we had no customers on the showroom floor. And uh, we actually got to know the names of all the city workers that came in and so on. And, but it was definitely, uh, we did do home deliveries, but it's not the same. You know, people that buy a used car want to go out. They want to see their options and they want to be able to select a car from all their options. A home delivery is... Uh, more like an Amazon purchase, and that's not what people are looking for in the used car business. If you give people the two options, you gave them the option of coming in and walking in, and then versus a home delivery, they prefer to come in and walk in, but during COVID-19, that option was taken away completely, and the only option to buying a car was home delivery. So once some people started doing it, they figured, hey, look, this is not that bad, actually, and more people are getting comfortable doing the home delivery now. So it was just a break of habit and getting rid of, you know, traditional way and showing people that the new way is a better way. And us as a car dealership, we actually saw more profit on those deals and we saw easier transactions doing home deliveries. By, even on finance? Yes, even on finance because we have this communication with the customer where you can, you can request the proof of residence, the proof of income from them before you submit it out to the bank. You have the time to get the deal properly approved by a finance company and then letting the customer know, hey, good news, I got you approved. Um, what time would you like me to deliver the vehicle? And then you can schedule it to where you can work multiple customers in the same time. So during the month of April, I operated with four salespeople and we were able to do over a hundred units. Wow. Wow. That's really impressive. So, and uh, 
a lot of my management wasn't here. So I was able to kind of work with them closely. I wasn't able to do the units I normally do, but um, believe it or not, for a staff of six people, you know, reducing my staff by like 80% and doing 30% of normal business, it was very calming actually. It wasn't chaotic, it was very easy to do and uh, expenses were very low. You know, that, that reminds me of uh, something we were talking about earlier in the conversation with uh, fraud and fraudulent information or incorrect information being provided by customers. I guess, based on what you're saying now with the financing being easier and getting all that information ahead of time, that could potentially prevent those kinds of buybacks, buyback situations as well, right? Absolutely, because not only do you have your set of eyes, but you have the finance company checking in on the income as well. So if, if you don't catch it in your system, the finance company will catch it and that will prevent the car from being delivered. COVID-19 more or less showed us that you don't need to rush through a car sale just to put it on the road. It's better off to slow down and make sure you actually do have a car deal rather than just putting it on the road and unwinding it two, two days later, three days later. You're better off with a guaranteed sale than a maybe sale. And then being able to slow down, you can maximize your profit instead of just putting it on the road, coming back for a re-sign to sign them for less money. You're actually signing them up for, you've maximized the deal as you sign it up. As a dealer, we don't think about the costs and the time that comes with having to re-sign the customer and bring the car, bring the car back. Correct. Plus, a lot of people oversee the negative reviews you get after you unwind the car. Oh yeah. So, you know, one, you know, a bad word goes to a hundred different ears versus a good word go may, might reach two or three years. Um, those people that you unwind five out of 10 are going to go put a bad review on your website and that's going to cost you business. And, uh, so you're better off just being upfront with the customer in the beginning and telling them, Hey, uh, come back on Monday after I have an approval. I don't think I can sell you a car. And if you are able to sell them a car, then good, they're gonna be happy. And if not, at least you, you didn't give them that false hope and take it away from them. Mm -hmm. um, you were telling me about your, your safety protocols during COVID-19 and things, steps that you've taken now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those safety protocols that you, you have implemented at Own a Car? Yes. So We've gone through the precaution of buying uh, disposable face masks. Um, I have two receptionists at the front door. Um, they both have face masks and they hand them out to customers as they come in. They are required to wear a face mask when you come into the door. Um, I've re removed a lot of the desks from inside and spaced them out. So I have at least, you know, the 10 foot distancing, more than six and uh, just reduced the amount of staff that can be inside the cars on the lot for the first for the past month were locked and we were only unlocking cars that customers would want to test drive and we'd know that okay this is going to be a car deal we've ran their credit they've they're approved on this certain car so we can go ahead and open it up and uh, test drive them on it and then also the staff we've this was the toughest part was getting the staff to social distance and to stay clean, sanitize. And uh, we did send them home early when they didn't have anything to do. One of the 
issues was is uh, we had a screening page that when you clock in, you need to fill it out and it's by the county where you, you have to circle yes or no about fever and yes or no if you're feeling illness. And uh, the salesman complained about it and they didn't want to do it. And, you know, it's just a matter of the 10 seconds of just circling no and no. And, you know, it goes a long ways for public safety. Let's, um, we talked a little bit about vendors, but I wanted to ask you one question about, uh, about well, a couple questions, but the first question is about, about vendors. Um, I'm really curious to know the answer to this from, from you. How do you decide what finance companies to work with? That's a tricky one. Over the past couple of years, banks have been moving away from relationship banking. So in the past, um, you can send a bunch of deals to one bank and your relationship will get you a long ways. Over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of finance companies change the way they do business. They're moving away from relationship banking and going towards more of a analytics banking where they're just looking at your numbers. They don't care who you are. They don't really care how many deals you've sent them in the past. They're just looking at today and that individual deal. My opinion would be to send them, send that deal to whoever's going to give you the most money for it. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're going to get to keep from the bank. They're not, you're not, you may not get to keep the relationship. As you know, after COVID, um, one of the banks or several banks have decided to cut off all independence. Um, they didn't look to see how many deals have we done with them in the past? How many good deals did they send? No, it was just an executive decision made to cut off all independent dealers. So a lot of dealers that I know of base their whole lives or all their business on relationship banking. And unfortunately with the situation, it didn't get them anywhere. It just, uh, and it sideswiped them and they don't know where to send their deals anymore because they've only dealt with bank X for the past 10 years. And well, bank X is not doing business anymore. So, that puts them in a really tough spot. Professional associations, which professional associations are, um, are you a part of? Uh, currently, the only one I am part of is Dealer XT. In the past, I haven't found an association that conforms to my needs or my dealership's needs. It was always formed around franchise stores and new car stores. I really didn't find anything for fit for a used car independent. So no one ever, they didn't provide me with anything that would be useful to my dealership and the uh, rules and regulations and policies that don't abide to me or they don't fit in my dealership. So I've had to develop all those from scratch. I think Dealer XT puts a lot of information at your hands, very easy to get. Um, the website, I did the trainings initially when I came on, all the manager trainings and you know, procedures and policies, the do's and don'ts. Um, I learned a lot from it. And it was put in a way where it was easy to understand and quick to go through. It wasn't like a, almost like going to college with a library book and having to figure it out and ask questions. It was very easy to understand. And um, the updates are very useful. You know, quick law changes coming out. Um, the biggest one was the DMV allowing us to do home deliveries once we knew uh, once we got that information it was we we're at the races uh, right away and uh, it, it was very unique and 
very simple the way it's brought forward. It's put in a language where you don't need another attorney or a professor to explain it to you. So I found that very, very cool. As a dealer, we need to know our rights, what we can and can't do and where that line is. And sometimes it's not worth it to get close to that line. And I think uh, with the help of Dealer XT, it kind of helped me figure out where that line is for my dealership and what is worth fighting and what's worth just throwing in the towel for. A uh, few more questions. Hopefully these are, these are going to be kind of uh... easier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you've brought this up to me a couple of times, uh, a few times in the past. I know we've had a conversation about this topic of dealers working together. So I wanted to ask you, what issues do you see with dealers not being able to cooperate and learn from each other? I think it's very important. If there was a way to establish, we should a relationship between independent dealerships, maybe not so franchised, but as independents and used, there needs to be a community to know uh, what's going on in the industry, what's going on in our town, what trend are we seeing? And uh, for example, one would be fraudulent customers. If we all see a trend happening, we can figure out a way to stop it. And uh, if my if my competition or so on gets frauded and a car take, it doesn't benefit me and actually puts me at more risk because that customer might come to me next and do the same thing to me. So it hurts us more than it helps anyone or it doesn't help anyone. It just hurts us. I think an ego thing is what keeps it from happening is, you know, other car dealers are always, territorial and trying to take over other territories and i'd hate to say this but we don't like to see good for others which needs to change when we always say when it comes to to sales it's absolutely fine and healthy to be competitive but when it comes to compliance and dealing with obstacles that all dealers are dealing with that's a time where we should unite Correct. and work together because that only benefits that only benefits the dealerships. Correct. And also the customers. If we can establish the way, you know, where the bar is at of a used vehicle, for example, I can take Fresno, for example, if um, we all set the bar that this is a used vehicle, yes, it should operate properly. It should be a safe vehicle. It should last you, um, X amount of years before breaking down. But again, we don't guarantee it because it's a used car and we have that common language. Then I think uh, people's expectations will change and become more realistic with what we can meet. What advice would you give the younger generation of people that are going into the car business? The advice I would give is uh, figure out Google and Facebook as quick as possible because to me, that's the new way of doing business. It's going to be digital. The old way of doing business is radio, TV. But as you guys see, um, no one, no two people listen to the same radio station anymore. Everyone has their different way of watching TV, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, or streaming on YouTube. And it's very hard to capture all these different people. 
if you're going to use one stream of uh, advertisement. So I think Google and Facebook are a big game changer because that's what we all have in common now. We all use Google and we all have Facebook and different social media platforms. But the digital age is real. It's here. And uh, in my field, from what I've seen, it out, it's already outperforming the foot traffic. What, what about the way that car dealerships and specifically used car salespeople are portrayed in the media and have been portrayed in the media for years? How does that make you feel as a professional in this industry? That did have a factor on why I wanted to become a professor for a little bit and teach at a university to show that I am not only a used car salesperson. Uh, people always think of us as scammers and, you know, hustlers. and But that's not really the case. Uh, you know, salespeople and we work hard for our money. You know, we're sometimes out in the sun for five, six, seven hours in a row and uh, trying to convince customers and trying to more or less uh, meet their needs and demands. And we're very patient people. And the few that stand out make make a bad name for all of us. I'll just I'll just tell you my opinion. I mean, I learned so much about not only how savvy most of these dealer owners are, how intelligent, how experienced in so many different realms of business and life. And then on a personal level, you know, the fact that most dealer owners that I talk to, you know, are married and have families and have kids and, and have hobbies and have lives and want good for people and want good for their customers. I mean, almost on every conversation I have. Maddie, again, I wanted to thank you so very much for your time. I know you're very, very busy to take out, you know, over an hour, almost two hours of your time to spend with us today is, is, uh, uh, much appreciated by me and I know it's going to be appreciated by all the dealers that are going to watch this video and learn uh, from your experiences and then also to to go on and continue to watch the uh, the next episodes of it which I, I hope that you enjoy as well yes we're very excited for it I appreciate you having me and uh, please keep the good knowledge coming of course brother thank you very much